This is the Voice Over Work podcast, brought to you by Newton Media Group, a family of creative services. This is Wednesday, September 8th, 2021. On the podcast today, we'll take a little deeper look into a book introduced in a previous podcast with a chapter-by-chapter look at... After Collapse, The End of America and the Rebirth of Her Ideals, written by Max Borders, narrated by Russell Newton. Chapter 1. The Breakdown of Our Metaphors and Models The despot is not a man. It is the plan. The correct, realistic, exact plan. The one that will provide your solution once the problem has been posited clearly, in its entirety, in its indispensable harmony. The Corbusier. In the Amazon, far below the rainforest canopy, a network of roots stabilizes a thick tree trunk. Mirroring the branches and twigs among the leaves above, the roots below split into smaller roots, which split into yet smaller roots, extending outward to absorb water. All of that water gets stored in the tree's cells. A few miles away, a mighty river rushes. That river carries watercraft and fish, a few large and many small, inexorably toward a delta. What feeds the great river are smaller rivers, Apurimac and Montaro, then tributaries, which are fed by streams, which are fed by brooks, which are fed by sources high in the Peruvian Andes. Navigating the river early in the morning, an old woman goes fishing. Her body contains a system of veins and arteries that carry blood, enriched or depleted, to nourish every cell in her body. Likewise, her brain and limbs are animated by information signals within a network of nerves. These signals have to be processed by an organ of fractal complexity, or the old woman would be unable to navigate, much less fish. Everywhere in the world, we see these sorts of living systems. They display the property researchers Adrian Bejan and Sylvie Laurent refer to as few large, many small. This stunning... Chapter 2. The Breakdown of Hierarchies By lessening the natural tendency for restlessness and by meditating on the infinite, posture is mastered. Thereafter, one is not disturbed by the dualities. Patanjali from the Yoga Sutras life and death, male and female, ruler and ruled. Simple dualities can often describe the world around us, but they're not always enough in the age of scientific advances. And yet the whole truth and nothing but the truth of, say, unified field theory can be, as philosopher Nelson Goodman put it, too vast, variable, and clogged with trivia. Is there a useful in-between? Some dualities are hard to deny because they're simple and clean, off and on, cathode and anode, beginning and ending. Others blur together in shades as white does to black, poles that are salient enough to notice and simple enough to use are ours for the taking. Learning to pick out dualities can offer us clues toward life's mysteries, but we had better know the difference between description and ascription, otherwise we might invent trouble where none exists or fail to see the gray. 
Let's begin with the duality that lives deep within us. Sigmund Freud must have contemplated this as his patients lay upon the famous couch in Vienna. In Beyond the Pleasure Principle, Freud wrote of Eros and Thanatos, which he said are human drives that are not strict binaries, but rather move together in the dance of our existence. Eros drives us to live, to create, and to procreate. We exert ourselves through passion, or we offer ourselves through nurturing. Eros can take the form of ambition or yearning. Chapter 3. The Breakdown of Our Belief in Liberalism A liberal rhetoric explains the good features of the modern world compared with the earlier and later illiberal regimes. The economic success of the modern world, its arts and sciences, its kindness, its toleration, its inclusiveness, and especially its massive liberation of more and more people from violent hierarchies, ancient and modern. Deirdre McCloskey Around 2,700 years ago, the Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu said, The world is a sacred vessel that cannot be changed. He who changes it will destroy it. He who seizes it will lose it. Lao Tzu is speaking of the natural harmony of non-violent human interaction, which is a liberal conception. Even though liberalism, the term, gained common currency in 18th century Edinburgh, it's lived at all times within all peoples to varying degrees, waiting to be expressed as morality, justice, conscience, and virtue. An early species of liberalism animates the Hebrew Talmud, which welcomes discourse and debate and leaves critical rules for living peacefully among other humans. One such story involves a goy who came to Shammai and provoked him, saying that he would convert to Judaism if Shammai could teach him the entire Torah while standing on one foot. Shammai dismissed the goy, but Rabbi Hillel welcomed him, saying, That which is hateful to you, do not do to another. That is the entire Torah, and the rest is its interpretation. Go and learn. Presumably, Hillel was standing on one foot when he said it. Still, in doing so... Chapter 4 the breakdown of community and mutual aid. Therefore, combine. Practice mutual aid. That is the surest means for giving to each and to all the greatest safety, the best guarantee of existence and progress, bodily, intellectual, and moral. Peter Kropotkin from Mutual Aid. Osceola McCarty spent most of her life taking in laundry and ironing to eke out a living in small-town Mississippi. She scraped, saved, and lived austerely, starting when she was a teenager. In her words, the following was a typical day. I would go outside and start a fire under my washpot. Then I would soak, wash, and boil a bundle of clothes. Then I'd rub them, wrench them, rub them again, starch them, and hang them on the line. After I had all of the clean clothes on the line, I would start on the next batch. I'd wash all day, and in the evening, I'd iron until 11 o'clock. I loved the work, the bright fire, wrenching the wet, clean cloth, white shirts shining on the line. That is, until 1995. That was the year McCarty gave the bulk of her life savings, $150,000, 
to Southern Mississippi University. For as long as she could remember, she had always wanted to be a nurse. Everything McCarty saved, cleaning and pressing the clothes of wealthier folk, went into a scholarship fund. She wanted young women to be able to study nursing, even if they didn't have the means. Contributions from more than 600 donors have added some $330,000 to the original scholarship fund of $150,000, wrote Rick Bragg in the New York Times. After hearing of Miss McCarty's gift... Chapter 5. The Breakdown of Collective Intelligence Without a world encyclopedia to hold men's minds together in something like a common interpretation of reality, there is no hope whatever of anything but an accidental and transitory alleviation of any of our world troubles. H.G. Wells from World Brain In 2008, British designer Thomas Thwaites decided that he would try to build a toaster from scratch. We're not talking about going to a store and buying manufactured parts to assemble. We're talking from scratch, as if in from raw materials pulled from the earth. Thwaites wanted to go deeper into the process most of us take for granted. What turns the stuff we pull out of the ground into the stuff that fills our homes? Thwaites set about on a solo manufacturing adventure that demonstrates how removed we are from the collective intelligence that makes our lives better. Thwaites had to find copper and iron ore in mines around the world, then do some in-house smelting. He had to look up patents for rudimentary components, and after a couple of failed attempts to convince BP to fly him out to an oil rig to get crude to make plastic, he ended up using potato starch instead. The final product wasn't pretty. It wasn't even shiny or spare. It was a haggard thing, the kind of toaster you or I might buy for the price of a decent meal. It took Thwaites nine months, international travel, and lots of creative repurposing to build. It didn't even work. Thwaites did plug his toaster in once, but because he didn't make insulation for the wires, the toaster began to melt after about five seconds. I don't expect that was enough time for the bread to brown. Chapter 6. The Breakdown of Discourse and Civil Order Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. W.B. Yeats from The Second Coming Whenever there's conflict in the world, you'll hear someone make a plea to recognize our common humanity. That person is usually roundly ignored, either because the appeal gets lost in the heat of friction and faction, or because it interferes with a collective desire for revenge. But in this refrain, however platitudinous, lies an important truth. Our common humanity forms the basis of our creation stories and secular humanisms alike. It's how we say we're not so different, you and I. It's a call to civility. Today, we are again witnessing the breakdown of civility and civil order. I say again because it's never really left us. It would be dishonest to claim that there has ever been an era in which civility was a mainstay. War is uncivil, 
but our civil war was fought over that most horrific form of disrespect for one human being by another. Slavery was instituted well before America became a nation. Despite the stirring words of the Declaration, its very fact adulterated the Constitution. What then does the Declaration mean in the 21st century? It's 244 years of effort by Americans, sometimes halting, but often heroic, to live up to our greatest ideal, writes columnist Brett Stevens. That's a struggle that has been waiting Part 2. After Collapse Chapter 7. The Breakdown of the Federal Government My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Percy Shelley from Ozymandias In 1990, the tiny country of Estonia was under the occupation of the Soviets. Several years prior, Estonians, including the young historian Mart Lahr, had engaged in nonviolent resistance, reviving songs of Estonian identity that predated the occupation. The singing revolution lasted four years until 1991, which marked the collapse of the Soviet Union, of which Estonia was an unwilling satellite. With the Soviet downsizing, the Baltic states had to find their own way. When Mart Lahr took the reins of power of the newly independent country in 1992, he was 32 years old. As the Soviets had left them, Estonia was rudderless, poor, and only beginning to heal from nearly 50 years under the heels of Russian boots. Lahr intuitively thought that the way to ensure Estonia's success was to cultivate freedom and self-determination. But, of course, he was no expert. After only two years in office, and with no diplomatic experience, Lahr negotiated Russian troops' complete withdrawal. Despite being no expert on monetary theory, he introduced Estonia's currency, the kroon, which is one of the world's stablest currencies today. He instituted a flat tax rate, removed price controls, discarded unnecessary regulations, and presided over... Chapter 8. Reimagine Liberalism In the presence of one firmly established in nonviolence, all hostilities cease. Patanjali from the Yoga Sutras All over the world, Shaolin monks are known for their superhuman abilities. Crouched atop wooden posts, they can balance for hours. To develop palm strength and bone density in combat, they repeatedly strike hard objects, such as vessels of water or pieces of wood. Eventually, they learn to crash through those objects in a single blow. A few have learned to break a piece of glass with a sewing pin. One monk, Xiao Rui, has trained his skin to withstand sharp objects. And in the Chinese provinces of Qinghai and Sichuan, you can find a unique set of Tibetan monks called the Tumo Meditators, who can use their minds to control their breaths and bodies. They do this to raise their body temperatures, which allows them to dry wet sheets wrapped around them. What is significant about all of these extraordinary gifts is not that Shaolin monks are genetically modified humans, it's that they practice. Most spend their days honing their skills, which takes cycles of patience, discipline, and focus. 
The problem with the liberalism of the past is that it was incomplete. The abstract, legalistic orientation of liberalism was not enough. What's been missing is practice. Even the moral ideals of Enlightenment thinkers, as presented in textbooks and tomes, is insufficient to animate a people. Not only must we give liberalism life again, but we must live it so that we can bring it into the iteration cycles of daily life. In other words, we have to exercise liberal values as daily practice. Chapter 9. Restore the Lost Constitution Deliberate, therefore, on this new national government with coolness, analyze it with criticism, and reflect on it with candor. Or the exercise of a standing army will always be directed and exerted for your welfare alone, and not to the aggrandizement of themselves, and that it will secure to you and your posterity happiness at home and national dignity and respect from abroad, adopt it. If it will not, reject it with indignation. Better to be where you are for the present than insecure forever afterwards. Cato 1. Anti-Federalists In the throes of collapse, people will want to turn to something familiar, something that feels timeless. Though the U.S. Constitution was designed by mortals, the document was once imbued with a sense of the eternal. Some argue that it's out of date. Others argue that there is much to be found in the penumbra, and that what can be found can save the Republic. I don't consider it my job to say whether there ought to be a Constitution after collapse. My job is to consider the best possibilities for human flourishing in light of change to our human systems, which may or may not include the Constitution. Over the years, though, high minds have argued that the Constitution is outdated, we don't need protection from unreasonable searches and seizures, they said from the right, to keep us safe. We don't need guns and militias anymore, they said from the left, to keep us safe. In what remained, the Constitution became a document of political opportunism used to block one's opposition, but was never respected in its totality by the political class. Pact Courts and Chapter 10. Prepare for the Power Shift Anarchy comes from the Greek on, meaning without, plus archos, meaning rulers. Anarchy doesn't mean without rules, but without rulers. Brian Robertson, author of Holacracy. Morningstar Packing Company is a vast commercial empire of fruit. But not just any fruit. Tomatoes. Last time I counted, there were five Morningstar factories dotted around California's Central Valley. Telescope in upon any given plant, and you'll find caravans of trucks queuing up to deposit ripe red tomatoes at the top of a mound. That innovation, clean and straightforward, uses gravity to send tomatoes down a flume into the guts of the processing facility. To and fro the trucks go, feeding a series of mechanized sorters, boilers, pH meters, and sundry computerized processing machines that ensure the quality and consistency of outputs, tomato sauce. Anytime you buy spaghetti sauce, ketchup, or barbecue sauce in America, chances are you're getting products from Morningstar Packing Company. It's difficult to describe the scale of these operations, but if the country had a vascular system of tomato products, the beating heart would be Morningstar. Depending on the season, 
there might be 2,000 or more colleagues teaming around the facilities. Up close, one will find people wearing either hard hats or hairnets and coverings. From far away, they all look like ants. The industrial might and ingenuity of these factories are impressive enough, but something more significant stands out about these operations. They run entirely without bosses. In this way, cliché references to ants are warranted because Morningstar operates like a superorganism through simple rules and evolved... Chapter 11. Build a Framework of Utopias More decadences, more burgeonings have followed one another in Clarice. Populations and customs have changed several times. The name, the site, and the objects hardest to break remain. Each new Clarice... Compact as a living body with its smells and its breath, shows off, like a gem, what remains of ancient Clarices, fragmentary and dead. Italo Calvino, from Invisible Cities Whitecaps and sea foam greet us in the foreground. As we approach, silver shafts rise over blue-green waters, creating an impossible cityscape. Skyscrapers cast a distorted mirror image of themselves on the water. Their spires glint in the sun, but they appear to terminate in great hexagonal platforms down around their bases. It's as if Poseidon plucked structures from Dubai or Singapore and set them down upon the platforms, arranged in logical, interlocking patterns. These configurations reveal this city's contingent nature, as each great hexagon can itself float away or be broken down into smaller units. The power of exit is built into the city. What holds the floating city together, then, are network effects. Value is drawn to value. If not, here today, gone tomorrow. All one has to do is vote with his boat. This city is an evolving ecosystem, morphing under continuous revisions. As with any city, that which is profitable persists, only now agreements tie everything together. On the outer rim, glassy fullerenes, clustered like barnacles, collect light for the greenhouses, fish farms, and algae process. Chapter 12. Replace Monopolies of Welfare and War You want my property? You can't have it. But I did you a big favor. I've successfully privatized world peace. Tony Stark, Iron Man most of us grown-ups don't believe in magic anymore. Sometimes, though, it can be helpful to imagine. In J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, a ring of power turns the wearer invisible. That power means the wearer can act with impunity. We, too, can imagine characters with superhuman abilities and consider the implications. These thought experiments help us to put ourselves and our society into perspective. In Tolkien's world, we wrestle with questions on the nature of power. In our scenario, though, let's imagine not only that wizards exist, but that one supremely powerful wizard has cast a spell over the realm. The wizard's spell is of nonviolence. Call it the spell of Ahimsa. Under this spell, no one can threaten or commit any act of harm against another person or their property. When a brigand tries to attack a caravan on the road, his fingers weaken and his dagger simply falls from his grasp. When a tax collector tries to arrest a merchant in the town, the handcuffs slip from his fingers. 
When a bully tries to push another girl, she pushes against an invisible wall of protection. It doesn't matter whether you think violence is being used in the service of good or evil. The fact is, the spell ensures a condition of complete nonviolence in society. What should we make of this? Would the realm be better off under the wizard spell? People will have different answers, depending on where they find themselves on some ideological matrix. Intuitively, though, I think most people agree that things would be better. Chapter 13. Upgrade Collective Intelligence In an imperfect world, the best insurance we have against truths being politicized is to put no one in particular in charge of it. Jonathan Roche The human condition is also the human condition. W.V.O. Quine Philosophers have struggled for millennia with questions about the nature of truth and our ability as humans to know it. Some are just puzzles that don't seem to have any relevance to modern life. Others are central to who we are. The more we explore these questions, the harder it gets to tell the difference between what's practical and what's merely puzzling. If we're going to bring about a renaissance in the post-collapse era, we will have to improve our collective intelligence. That means that we may not only have to improve our epistemology, i.e. our ways of knowing, but we're also going to have to improve our ability to store, access, and share what we know together. When I think about what we know together, I'm not talking about any attempt to stand outside of my skin suit to verify some mind-independent reality. Last I checked, as of this book going off to print, I can't do that. Instead, I'm willing to settle for what we have termed intersubjective agreement, which, for all I know, could be a language game inside a matrix-like simulation. Again, these are the sorts of puzzles that preoccupy philosophers. Right now, I'm willing to settle for enlarging the class of things we can usefully say we know, and from that, derive measures of progress along certain dimensions. If our ideas about collective intelligence include forging intersubjective agreements, we'd better make sure such agreements aren't groupthink. So, how do we do that? First, we have to make reason and evidence great. Chapter 14. Conjure Meaning Arjuna saw in that universal form unlimited mouths and unlimited eyes. It was all wondrous. The Bhagavad Gita Imagine you were offered two stark choices. You could be the first to implant a chip in your brain that puts you in a state of total bliss until you died, or you could be among the first to settle a Mars colony. In the first case, serotonin, dopamine, and oxytocin would keep you feeling good. Really good. But that feeling would attach to little in your real-world circumstances. In the second case, your life would be challenging. You would have to train for months, if not years, before you launched. Upon arrival, you would have a lot of work to do to survive in an environment in which you did not evolve. Which would you choose? I'm not here to argue that none among us would choose bliss over Mars, but I am here to say that a significant number of people would choose Mars over bliss. The simple fact is we're made for challenges, and we want to be remembered for rising to them. Bliss, yeah, it feels good. But will you be remembered for it? Now, suppose we add a third choice. 
you get to live a bucolic life in some of the most beautiful mountains on earth to tend goats, make art, and be there for your children and grandchildren. There's work involved, but you're surrounded by people you love. Now, which would you choose? Meet my mother. I know someone who has chosen to live option three, my mom, Anne. Of course, she never got to choose between that or permabliss or Mars, but if anyone pressed her, I bet she wouldn't give up the life she has. She's not only happy, she is... In the Amazon, far below the rainforest canopy, a network of roots stabilizes a thick tree trunk. Mirroring the branches and twigs among the leaves above, the roots below split into smaller roots, which split into yet smaller roots, extending outward to absorb water. All of that water gets stored in the tree's cells. A few miles away, a mighty river rushes. That river carries watercraft and fish, a few large and many small, inexorably toward a delta. What feeds the great river are smaller rivers, Apurimac and Montaro, then tributaries, which are fed by streams, which are fed by brooks, which are fed by sources high in the Peruvian Andes. Navigating the river early in the morning, an old woman goes fishing. Her body contains a system of veins and arteries that carry blood, enriched or depleted, to nourish every cell in her body. Likewise, her brain and limbs are animated by information signals within a network of nerves. These signals have to be processed by an organ of fractal complexity, or the old woman would be unable to navigate, much less fish. Everywhere in the world, we see these sorts of living systems. They display the property researchers Adrian Bejan and Sylvie Laurent refer to as few large, many small. This stunning vascularization of everything means that even inorganic systems can have a kind of life, where life is defined as accommodating currents of flow and change. Living systems are thus flow systems, and if a system is no longer able to deal with currents of flow and change, it dies. We can say the same of human systems. To the extent that a human system... More information regarding today's book and the author can be found at audible.com or amazon.com. Show notes and further information can be found at russellericnewton.com. With a collection of trivia, research, news stories, and knowledge from some of the newest audiobooks on the market, this has been the Voice Over Work Podcast, brought to you by Newton Media Group, a family of creative services.